Brothers and sisters, if you will, turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Our sermon text for this evening will be coming from chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. That's the Gospel according to Luke, 11 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Uh, Tonight, I really want to begin with a bit of history. Uh, As we read through the New Testament, you know, we find many details about various kinds of leaders and rulers throughout Judea, throughout the whole book of Acts, throughout really the whole Roman Empire. Some we grow to be familiar with. Others end up being a big, long, funny name on the page that we kind of skim over. Yet still others exist in the background, uh, like a haunting specter in the memories of the author and its recipients. One such man is a man named Archelaus. Uh, Archelaus inherited the kingdom of Judea after his father, Herod the Great, which some of you might have heard of, who ruled with an iron fist. And Archie faced many challenges to his rule. The Jews despised him and his family for their close ties and their harsh governance. In the early years of his reign, he took over the Herodian palace that lied between Jericho and Jerusalem, and after some grandiose renovations, even called it home. Throughout this entire time, Archie continued facing opposition, opposition from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all accusing him of being tyrannical, unfit to rule. Yet despite these challenges, he sought to consolidate his power and maintain control. So around the end of 6 AD, he traveled to Rome, hoping desperately hoping to secure a grant, to secure the right for his rule from Augustus. Simultaneously, though, the Jews, despising his rule, sent a delegation of their own. 
they made the trek to Rome to petition the emperor to remove him from power, accusing him of cruelty, mismanagement, and arguing for a different type of governance. Lo and behold, the governor, or sorry, the emperor actually listened to the complaints of the Jews, and they deposed Archie. He was ultimately banished and spent his life in exile. With him removed from power, it was then placed under a different control, and it was the end of that dynasty. Already, I'm assuming some of you, in hearing this story and this little bit of history, are seeing some of the parallels between our parable and this story, one of political intrigue and uncertainty. And I think this bit of history, as well as this story, helps us 21st century disciples of Christ enter into the world of our ancient brothers and sisters. It really sets the scene that lies before us this evening. For Jesus here in Luke 19 has arrived in Jericho and is sprinting, if you will, towards Jerusalem. Luke tells us that his face has been set toward Jerusalem like a flint. His gaze is set. He's determined to accomplish the purpose for that which he came. As he goes to Jericho, just prior to this, he encounters the wee little man Zacchaeus himself. And we see how an encounter with Christ Jesus can have radical effects upon a person. But as here, our telephoto lens, so to speak, zooms in. In verse 11, we see as, as they heard these things... He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. And this means one of two things. Either that in Zacchaeus' house, in this company, he began to tell this story or he told it during the same circumstances. As he was traveling, as he left Jericho and was making his way to Jerusalem, when even the disrupted palace that Archelaus once lived in could have been by the roadside, he's telling this story. In the end, it doesn't matter too much as where we find precisely Christ told this account, but there is something unique about the setting. With this palace of Archie just outside, the events are not too removed from the mind of the locals and from the hearers. Christ draws all of us, as well as them, into this tale, a tale of political intrigue and a tale of uncertainty. Where he says in verse 12, telling the parable, a certain nobleman went into a far country, went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So our parable in this first scene, this first act, if you will, begins with this nobleman. We don't know anything about this guy. For our purposes, he's blank. We know his purpose. He departs from his land with that he has some kind of right to. He's already called the noblemen. The very citizens that say we don't like this guy, we don't want him to rule over us, are called citizens. He already has some aspect of rulership, and he's planning on coming back. Now, the practice itself of departing to receive kind of a right to rule or authority isn't too uncommon in the Greco-Roman world. To leave and seek that from a higher authority is normal. It's not really out of the ordinary, but the hearers are ready to be sensing the vestiges of Archelaus and his tyranny in the back of their minds, wondering, who will this ruler be? Is he a good guy, a bad guy? Where do we find ourselves? Who's the, the hero of the story, so to speak? But their uncertainty, if anything, grows with ours in verse 14. Who is this nobleman that is so hated, so despised by his very people, his own citizens, that they send a group of representatives after him saying, no, no, we do not want this man this man to rule over us. Certainly we can imagine not liking a particular political leader, but for this nobleman's citizens, it almost seems personal. 
we are left wondering, is this guy really all that bad? Should the citizens stand up for themselves like the Jews did a few decades ago, or are they in the wrong? Really, we have to wait and see, is this nobleman a bad guy? But before he leaves in this first act, he does one act, one thing of importance. He gathers together his servants, and for ten of them, he gives them one mina each. A mina is a a decent sum of money, but the amount itself is fairly irrelevant as much as the task. What's important here, then, is his purpose. Since he gives them each a mina and leaves them with a command, a command from their master, engage in business until I come. Engage in business until I come. Now, this phrase is a bit peculiar in the original languages. Uh, Its Hebrew equivalent can mean to busy oneself, to exert oneself. Sometimes the commentators will say it means to do or to conduct business, to trade with, maybe to earn, to invest. So from this, it really shows that the departing master is concerned with the servants going out. Going out and conducting business in the marketplace. Business in the marketplace with this deposit, this sum of money that he has left them. Yet it's not finished there. It's qualified further with a unique prepositional phrase. I'm coming back. I think most accurately, not just until I come back, but because I am coming back. Do business because I am returning. This is communicating the idea the servants are to go into the marketplace in the name of their master and to do as much business as they can because he's returning and he's returning with the right to rule and to reign. Engage in business because I am coming back. So the stress in that sense falls upon the promise that is inherent within this command. They are to go conduct business in the marketplace. Now, it's a little different for us because we don't have servants, but for them to be a servant, they can only go if they conduct it in the name of their master. They're going to be conducting business as a representative with a decent sum of money in their master's absence. In the end, it's not their money, it's not their mina, it's not their trade, it's not their business. They hardly even have the right to, except what is derived from the authority of their very master. This nobleman, we can only be certain, be aware of the hatred of his citizens. Aware that his, his servants would face social ostracization, persecution, antagonisms. He's going to be gone. Who will be there to protect them? They're going alone into a hostile environment in the name of the very object of the hatred of the people. In the name of the master. They would be clearly marked and identified This is kind of like going shopping for a loaf of bread in Nazi Germany as a Jew. You are marked. You are clearly identified to everyone watching as the object of hatred and scorn. But if you want to do business, you had to be so identified. Thus, the servants are going out in the name of their master to conduct business because he is returning. So the promise becomes all the more important. The promise inherited in that command, because I am coming back, is meant to provide comfort meant to provide comfort in the certain times of uncertainty that are coming. He's communicating with confidence that he is returning. You know, we, he communicates this, we really don't want to separate these threads, because you can read through that parable, and at first glance, it sounds like two separate things are happening. It's kind of weird, where it's like you have this story of noblemen departing to receive authority, citizens hating him, and then there's almost this aside that ends up taking the bulk of the parable of him leaving his servants, these minas. But these two threads really weave together. These two threads come together, a nobleman seeking his throne, the story of the minas, 
He's promised to return. And Christ's audience would have understood that he was asking his servants to do business, to stand firm in the midst of this political uncertainty. He was commanding them to be faithful, faithful in conducting business in his name, faithful to the command, and ultimately faithful to him, to place their faith in the master. But they would need faith. They would need trust that their master said he would return and that he actually would. If they were to go out and do business and their master come back and not receive authority but be quelled or put down like Archie was, well, who knows what would happen. But rather, like we spoke this morning, of faith is faith that apprehends visible and the invisible. Faith that is a holistic response with action. A faith that gets moving in light of a certain future. That is what's required of these servants in the absence of the nobleman. So before the narrative continues on in verse 15, there's, there's an implied lapse of time, of some significant narrative time. It doesn't matter how much, but during this time we know a few things occur. The servants have watched their master leave. They've watched his hatred boiled over like a cauldron too close to a fire. Watched as the master's citizens rise up and send out delegations trying to stop him from accomplishing his task. All the while they're conducting business. Hearing the jeers, the quips, suffering hostility and discrimination, the citizens crying, not this man. Maybe they will succeed. Maybe the delegation will succeed. Maybe the ruler will come back with authority. Who knows? But in the midst of this unrest and uncertainty, they are questioned. They are put to the test. Will they give up in fear or they have faith in the master that they serve? And that brings us to the bulk of the parable in the second half. For lo and behold, we do see the master does return. The nobleman comes back on the scene. And it turned out a little differently than it did with Archie. For this nobleman, having done exactly what he set out to do, returned with the kingdom. He returned with the kingdom and has now received all authority and claimed the throne. The throne that was his by right all along, he now has received in full. So as he returns, we hear how he follows up. He follows up with two groups, the servants and the citizens. The citizens who now in the story are dubbed enemies. For both the servants and the enemies must give an account. For we all must before the king. So, it says he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. That he might know what they had gained by doing business. First came before him, saying, Lord... Your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. With the light that their master has returned, servants come back to give an account, to tell them that they were faithful to fulfilling his command. They conducting business in his name. And wow, the first guy from one mina to ten mina is a 900% increase. I don't know about anyone else, but if I had a stock or an investment that grew 900% in a relatively short period of time, I would be ecstatic. This guy crushed it. The second servant's right there with him, a 400% increase. Yet, for both of these servants, they don't take the credit. They don't take what might be their due. Instead, it says... Your mina. We see that they put all the honor and love for their master. They did not grow it, but your mina made this growth. 
It is the mina that was a gift from the master. It was never theirs to begin with. It was his mina. Through his generosity, they were able to produce such fruit. So these servants, in varying degrees, both to ten minas and to five, weren't ashamed of their master's authority. They went boldly into the marketplace and endured hardship and reaped incredulous gain, a crazy amount of gain. And we see this difference even between the 900% and the 400%, the 10 minas and the 5 minas, also results in a, a bit different reward. There's a different yield that then results in a different reward. One is given authority over 10 cities and one over 5. It's fascinating, even that. That to be faithful over a sum of money and maybe a month or two's wage, depending on how you do the math, ends up with authority over one city would be crazy enough. But five, ten cities? It's a completely extravagant, lavish, disproportionate reward for those who showed faithfulness and showed faith in their master. A few months' wages is not comparable with authority over a city. Yet, even in that very act, the preposterous nature of this reward, we see that this whole task, this whole act, really is is almost a trial of sorts, a trial sum given to test their faithfulness to the king. Both the servants prove themselves to have integrity. They are those who are faithful in very little and will be faithful in very much. And beautifully, the reward is interesting. Often we, we think of reward in the sense of putting your feet up, resting, but here it's more responsibility. Not in the sense of, oh, here's more work to go do, but hey, share with me, share in this new reign, share in participation with the throne that I have claimed. What greater reward is there than sharing in rule and authority with such a gracious, kind, and generous master? Here we already see our our very uncertainties about this nobleman fading away. He's clearly not like Archie. He's not a despot, but rather is generous. He's full of integrity and character. He's not a harsh ruler, but rewards lavishly. But the story doesn't end with the two faithful servants. Then we get the other servant, or another servant of the lot, in verse 20, who came and said, Lord, here is your mina which I laid away in a handkerchief. In the beginning, we hear the difference. The first two came and said, Master, your mina did this. Your mina made more. But here it is, your mina that I kept laid away in a handkerchief. We don't have this trust in this faith and this generosity of the master, but rather, here are my actions. Now, it's a unique expression to, to lay away in a handkerchief. It's, um, it's really encoding one of two things. It's the servant hiding the money away, most likely in, in fear or doubt, but to hiding the money away in either a, a cloth that was bound pretty much and worn around the neck or wrapped in cloth and buried. Now, interestingly, recent archaeological studies have shown that there's massive coin hoards throughout the, the region of Israel there from this time period, and they're always closely tied to periods of political unrest, political uncertainty, which kind of makes sense if we think about it. Like, if tomorrow you weren't sure the USA would still be here or we'd be under a new regime, a new government, and you wanted to protect that which was yours, what would you do with it? Would you hide the gold under your mattress? Would you bury it under the doghouse? Could you trust the banks? What would you do? Well, in their time period, it was just common sense to 
act like tiny dragons and bury their little hordes of coins in safe places until this uncertainty had passed. So here we see that the servant called to give an account. The period of uncertainty has passed. The nobleman has returned. They know who's come out victorious between the two opposing parties, the citizens and the nobleman. He's come with authority. And this servant then comes with a single, solitary mina, the very same one he had been given, with fear and trembling, and begins making excuses. Excuses, seemingly, almost as like he's justifying himself for why he was unfaithful and why this servant has ten minas to return, this servant has five, and he has his one that he buried. He begins making these excuses, and in it we see that this evil, wicked servant, how he truly sees his master how he truly understands who he serves. He knew what was asked of him. That's clear. And he lived through the same time period with the other servants, yet did not faithfully serve. He allowed the fear of this risky season to control him. He proved unfaithful, but ultimately faithless. Had no faith in his master, no confidence in his character or his promise. He explains why, and we see really how clueless this servant is. For though he is externally counted among the servants, it's clear he does not know his master. The generous master just rewarded other servants for being faithful with a little money with a lavish reward of cities, is now being told, you're greedy, you're severe, you're stingy. I knew you were a harsh man. The master is a source of fear to the servant, not his object of faith. And the master quickly exposes the lunacy of this. The lunacy of the servant saying, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. If you really believed your own excuses, then you would have done the absolute bare minimum. You would have put my money in the bank even. But your own words betray your unfaithfulness and that you do not know me. When the first two servants hear, well done, good servant. Here he stands condemned as the wicked servant. So much so that even what he has is stripped away from him and taken and given to those who were faithful. He says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The very only thing that this wicked servant had was what belonged to the master already. What belonged to the very master who rebukes him and takes away his deposit. He's left with nothing. A servant, penniless, condemned by his master with a scathing rebuke. And yet, though that whole narrative of the servants takes up six, seven verses there, it doesn't end. It brings us back to that thread that was woven throughout the story, but really appeared clearly in the beginning with the citizens who hated the nobleman. For we find that another group must give an account to the king, an account to the nobleman, says in 27, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Harsh words, but those who were previously called servants, those are citizens and previously identified as citizens are now identified by their real name, their true name that is evidenced and exposed by their actions. They're enemies. They're enemies of the king. They are those who oppose his ascension to the throne enemies to the king, their very fate is death. And not even a good death, but the word slaughter. They oppose their rightful ruler. They oppose the king, and they are to be utterly destroyed. 
So this parable is closing then with this nobleman exercising his, divine, his kingly authority. The faithful are rewarded, the unfaithful is condemned, and the enemies are slaughtered, all giving an account to the nobleman. And Christ, I think, drawing on these recent memories of the despot Archie, flips the story. You see this twist here. The nobleman is not a despot, but rather one who gives generously. All along, they're probably thinking, oh, these citizens must have it right. And they find themselves in the twist in the wrong position. This is what he is doing. He's communicating that really four, four things Excuse me, about his kingdom. For we saw in verse 11, I skimmed by it, but I wanted to come back to it, that he has two reasons that ground his very motivations. It says in verse 11, he tells this parable because they were near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom was immediately coming, was immediately arriving. As Christ the Messiah approached his destination, is Jerusalem where he had set his face, they were abuzz with expectation. If he was the Messiah, he was going to ride in triumphant. He was going to claim the throne, kick out the Romans, institute a golden age for Israel. But rather, Christ tells his parable to correct them. It is passion that awaits. It is death that lies before him in the fulfillment of his mission and calling. The Son of Man is going to be raised up, yes, but not in glory, but on the cross, which will be his glory. He will be enthroned in death unto resurrection. For the kingdom of God defied their very expectations. It was the path of the cross that would lead to the true kingdom. A path of blood shed not from the Romans, but his own blood. So Jesus then tells this parable for three reasons. To teach that there will be a period of time before the full consummation of his kingdom and the kingdom of God. To encourage faith and faithfulness in those who serve him. And as well, the thrust to warn all who hear citizens or servants, that you will give an account to the king. From that first purpose, we see that there is a large difference between the word immediate and the word imminent. Those in Christ's day thought that the kingdom was going to come immediately, invisible, violent overthrow. But Christ tells this parable illustrating that it's different. Instead, the kingdom is imminent. For Christ is clearly analogous to the nobleman in this story who possessed the right and the rule to reign, or the right to rule and reign, who went to a far country to receive his kingdom. This is exactly what we know for Christ to have done. And Luke is drawing on this, knowing it as he's writing this post-resurrection and ascension. Christ has departed for a far country in heaven in the book of Acts and sat down at the right hand of the Father in his session. Now with all authority and right as the king in the line of David to rule. And Christ told us himself, like the nobleman, Promising, saying, I will return, I will come back. Surely I am coming soon. Brothers and sisters, this is the promise of our Savior and King to his servants. He is coming back and coming back triumphantly. He's coming back in glory and victory as the very Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. Let us pray to our Lord and hasten to that day of his great returning when he comes back with all authority and dominion and the full consummation of his kingdom. But just like the nobleman, Christ was rejected by his very own people. And this is, as I said, where that twist is, the Jews finding themselves questioning who this nobleman is throughout the first half of the parable, wondering if he's a despot like Archie. 
and likely identifying with the citizens who send the delegation, well, we know they actually end up do identifying with those because they judged incorrectly. The next few chapters of Luke show us that. The cornerstone which the builders rejected. Or John says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The rightful ruler, the long-awaited, long-prophesied Messiah is rejected, is killed. He's met with hatred and disdain from his citizens who cry out, crucify him. We do not want this man to rule over us. These citizens and enemies, though, are more than just the handful of people involved in the physical crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, but all who are defined by hatred of God, all who are defined by persecution of God's people who are not true servants of Christ and ultimately receive divine punishment and judgment poured out. No, not in his first coming, but in Christ's second coming. It's part of what we confess in our creeds every morning on Sunday morning when we say he's coming to judge the living and the dead. For all are going to give an account to the king when he returns. And this brings us then to the last purpose, to encourage faith and faithfulness of those who serve him. Just as the nobleman commissioned his servants with a task, a task to have faith in him, expressing that faith and faithfulness by going and conducting business in the marketplace, so Christ commissioned the church. Despite adversity, despite persecution, despite discomfort, they are to take this gift, and as we are, a gift that they did not earn, which was not theirs by right, and go into a world that is hostile and boldly conduct business, boldly stand in their master's place and in his name despite the opposition. Remember, the nobleman guaranteed his return in that inherent promise with the command, because I am coming back, just as Christ has guaranteed it when he commissions the church. In the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, we even see about the church, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And it concludes at the end with, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the servants here are then representing all those under the banner of Christ, those who are outwardly aligned with Christ outwardly in the church of Christ. But we do know under this very banner we see some who truly know their king, who know who he is, who know he is lavishly generous. Yet at the same time, there are others whose faithlessness is evidenced. In the characterization of that final servant, we find one who is under the name of the king but does not truly serve him. A servant that reveals his lack of faith that denies his king's promised return and is faithless. A servant is like those Christians in the visible church and new covenant who are not really a part of the church. Those who have professed but are not members of God's elect people. Though they have been given access to some blessings and partake of even the table possibly or the gospel message, they still do not believe. For these servants have denied their master and have been unfaithful. And as Luke says, just prior to this, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory. But it is not all doom and gloom. It is not over there. For there are those who do know their king, who do know that he is great, who gives disproportionate awards, who has faith in his promise. And that's where we find ourselves, brothers and sisters, as heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We know the rich inheritance that awaits in the new creation with the return of our king. Christ is using this parable to correct false assumptions about his kingdom, to warn of the coming judgment, but also to spur his servants and us to faithfully serve him. And I think this is exactly what Peter gets at 
uh, really at the heart of this in 1 Peter 1. I'll read a few verses here that really capture it. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is it, brothers and sisters. Though we live in a time in between the first and second coming, as we await the return of our King, the full reign and full authority, which will come with judgment, We know he is coming. We can trust his promises. We can trust that we can stand firm in what he's commissioned the church to do. We have an inheritance, imperishable, unfading, as we are tested in the genuineness of our faith. So, beloved of Christ, press on. Do not give in to doubts, to fears. Do not reject him in the face of hostility or persecution, but have faith in our promised king. Because he is coming back. I said this morning that faith apprehends the reality of heaven. It acts in faith in the present. And that very faith that you've been given is a gift from our Lord and Savior. It is a gift from our King. Cherish it. Nurture the gift of faith. And express your trust in our soon coming King. For all those who place faith and hope in Lord Christ and his finished work on the cross will not be put to shame. One day, instead, they will hear the sweet words of their Savior, Well done, good servant. So until then, as we wait for him to come, let us be faithful in our Master's command. Let us proclaim his reign and right to rule, even as we now proclaim that in his death as we prepare to eat from the bread and take of this cup. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming back, and our King will put all things to right and justly reward Have faith in your Lord and Savior. Have faith in our coming King. Let's pray.